Well, good morning, church. It's been a while, but I'm happy to be joining you from across the ocean in Basque Country this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Van Boeglen, and my family and I had the joy of serving alongside you there at Crossroads as a sort of unique international church planning resident in 2018 and 2019. Though our time with you was relatively short, it was a really uh, a great time of growth and encouragement, and we appreciate your support as we continue to serve here. Thanks especially to Matt and the team for this invitation, and it's my privilege to be able to share the Word of God again with you this morning. We're going to be going through Acts chapter 17, or at least the second half of it, uh, but before we jump in, I want to take just a second to summarize our ministry here for those of you who maybe uh, don't know us. My wife Sarah and I and our two daughters, Madeline and Emery, were sent by you here to Basque Country in 2019, and we serve here with three other family units. Currently, we live in three different Basque towns along the northern coast of Spain, and as cross-cultural workers, it's not so much our aim to plant a church as much as facilitate a church being planted. We're praying that through us, God might raise up believers all over Basque Country that plant reproducing churches themselves and can share the good news of Jesus with people in their own culture and in their own native language. At this point, then, we are seeking to establish Discovery Bible Studies in our towns. We're partnering with local Spanish-speaking churches, and we're also encouraging Basque believers that do exist to, to grow in their faith. And we appreciate any prayers uh, that you continue to raise up on behalf of the Basque people that God would raise more people up. We are praising God that there is now one um, Basque-speaking group of believers that has formal meetings here in Basque Country in the nearby town of Usurbio. And um, they've been going for a little while now and have even baptized a couple of believers recently. So that's really exciting. Uh, they're the only formalized group of Basque believers that exist in all of Basque country that we know of. And we're excited to see them grow. Our group has been kind of in contact with the leaders of, of that group for many years now. And we're looking forward to seeing what God is going to do through them. So that's exciting news. And we're praising God for that. Um, I'll be sharing a bit more about Basque ministry as we go, kind of here and there, but let's take a look at what God has to say in his word this morning. So if you would, turn to Acts chapter 17. As we continue in the book of Acts, uh, we're sort of skipping over chapter 16, so as we start this morning, I want to give us some context before we get into chapter 17. So chapter 16 is what we call the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. You may remember that during his first journey, he went to the island of Cyprus and then moved on to the region of Galatia, where he established some churches there before returning to his home base in Antioch. And now chapter 16 starts his second journey being sent out from Antioch. And before Paul moves on to new places, he wants to visit those uh, existing places that he visited during his first journey to sort of give them encouragement and, um, and instruction as they continue on in their faith. So while visiting one of those places, Lystra, Paul uh, is introduced to a young man named Timothy, and Timothy ends up joining them for the rest of their second journey. As they set out from there to visit new places then, uh, Paul receives a vision from a man in Macedonia pleading with them to come and help them. And Paul takes this as a sign from the Holy Spirit that he's supposed to go to Macedonia, and then the rest of chapter 16 and into chapter 17 is Paul's experience throughout Macedonia. He goes to places uh, like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, some of those places Paul writes letters to later. 
but in each town they go to, they end up getting kicked out for causing disturbances among the people as they're sharing about Jesus. The Jews there especially didn't want him preaching Christ, and so they even followed him from town to town and plotted ways to keep them moving on so that they weren't uh, causing disruptions to the Jewish faith. And um, finally in Berea, Paul is essentially sent off ahead of his companions because people are pursuing him. And so some believers take him as far as Athens and he leaves Silas and Timothy behind in Berea. And this is kind of where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 17. So we'll, we'll read these verses and we'll start in verse 16 and kind of work our way systematically through them. Acts chapter 17 verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now the first thing that we stop to notice here is the fact that Paul didn't intend to be in Athens. He was simply waiting there for Silas and Timothy to rejoin him before he could continue on doing what God was calling him to do. And uh, even though it was not part of his plan, to be in Athens, he decided to take advantage of the opportunity that he had, and so he started talking with people. First, he goes to the synagogue, like he usually did when he entered a new town, and he tried to convince there that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus was the Messiah that they were waiting for, and then he also spends time roaming around the city and even spending time in the market marketplace with anyone who will listen, talking to them about Jesus and the resurrection. you notice that Paul's always on mission. No matter where he goes and whatever circumstance he's in, even when he gets thrown in prison, he's on mission and telling people about his faith and about the good news of Jesus. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning, but maybe you find yourself in a place of situa situation that you never intended to be. Maybe you don't understand why you are where you are or what you're supposed to do or even where you're going next. And... I kind of feel like that a little bit here. I'm still relatively new here in Basque Country. I'm living in a foreign culture, trying to communicate in a foreign language with very limited vocabulary at this point. And maybe some of you feel that way about your Christian vocabulary this morning. I don't know where you are in your faith, um, but a lot of times we as Christians feel as though we don't really know enough to share our faith with others. We're not smart enough or we're not uh, in tune enough with what the Bible says in order to, to share. And that's okay. We don't have to wait until we have it all figured out before we start sharing the news of Jesus. We just use what we know and we speak when we can, and we allow the Holy Spirit to do the rest. To be honest, some days I have no clue how God is going to use me here, especially in Basque. But I do know this. God can use me where I am, and God can use you where you are, regardless of your situation. He knew we would be here even before we were born, and he has a plan for us, a plan to use us where we are. And like Paul, we should ask ourselves, look at our current situation and say, God, how can you use me in this situation? How can I glorify you while I'm here? How can I be on mission? And the answer to that may look very different for each one of us. For me, part of that answer is preaching this message to you this morning, though I might not be able to communicate everything I want to in Basque. Uh, I have the opportunity to share with other believers this morning about God's Word, and so that's part of how God is, is choosing to use me in this, uh, this situation. But I look forward to being able to do that here someday as well. The second thing we know 
second thing we notice in these first few verses is that uh, Paul has a real heart for the people. It says that he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And back then, idols were much more apparent. They literally had statues everywhere. And history tells us that at this time, there were actually more idols in Athens than there were people. So they were very apparent. In our day, idols are a little less apparent, uh, but they are certainly still everywhere. So I say that, but what are they? What are our current idols? Obviously, we don't have statues uh, in the streets, but what are they? What are the things that we look to for comfort or security or joy or hope? One good way to root out idols in our lives is to think about how we react when something is taken away. Consider things like money or power, control, or sex, or family, or community. Maybe it's church preferences. Maybe it's political ideology. None of these things are bad in and of themselves, but when they take the place of Christ as our source of hope, then they become idols. They can't ultimately provide the things that we look to them for any more than a stone statue can. And we need to repent of this and trust in Christ alone. Paul took one look around Athens and he realized these people are in trouble spiritually. They're looking to things for hope that, that can't provide it. And that's what leads him to go to the synagogue. And that's what leads him to go to the marketplace and talk to people about Jesus. Evangelism flows out of a heart, of, uh, a heart for the lost. If we're going to be serious about being on mission, our hearts must break as we look around and we see people who don't know Jesus as their one true hope. And if you're taking notes this morning, that's our first big idea from the text, is that evangelism flows out of a heart for the lost. When we moved to Basque Country, I noticed a huge change in the way my heart broke for people. In the States, I did try to make intentional relationships with people and share my faith and find ways to engage with people around me, but when I got here, it was different. As I walked around town, I looked around and I knew that every person I saw was lost. No one knew Jesus here. And that hit me a lot differently than in the States where somebody may know Jesus or not. You don't know. The church is relatively widespread and uh, here it doesn't exist. And so as I saw people my heart just broke, and it led me to start praying for people as, that I saw through town. As I was walking around, I would say to myself, gosh, maybe this person is someone that will accept the gospel someday, or maybe it's that person. There have got to be people here that, uh, that are going to be brought to the Father, and, and we don't know who they are, but it could be anyone. And I found myself wishing that I had that same mindset in the States, too. Uh, I didn't see everyone I, I passed as a potential believer. I... I kind of pigeonholed myself into thinking that those people would only come from certain situations. And uh, I wish that I didn't. So I encourage you to start seeing people around you uh, in a way that, that they may need you in order to know Jesus, no matter who they are and wherever you see them, whether it's at the store or at work or whether you're walking around the park or, or wherever you are. See people as, as someone who may need your help um, to know Jesus. And, one practical thing that we can do is to be, begin praying a quick prayer of surrender as we encounter people. I like to say something like, God, I don't know if you want to use me in this person's life, but I'm willing. And if it's so, I need you to give me the courage and, 
uh, and the wisdom to do so. Then I just wait and see what happens. I see where the conversation goes, and sometimes it goes nowhere, and that's okay. We have to be prayerful about opportunities for mission moments. That's our, our, our second idea here from the beginning is uh, we should be looking on the lookout for, for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people, and, and we have to be prayerful about those opportunities. And um, Then we can be ready when it does go somewhere. Oftentimes it doesn't, but when the Holy Spirit works, uh, things happen, and so we ought to be ready for that and aware of what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. The next question that follows that then is, what do we do when it does go somewhere? How do we handle that? And we're going to see Paul handle it in his way here as we continue on in the scripture. Let's see what he does in verse 18. It says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Athens at this time was the intellectual center of the Greek world, and it had been the home of people like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, uh, people that we hear about in history all the time. And we see Paul encounter two of the main worldviews that exist, and they're Epicureanism and Stoicism. Now, Epicureans basically believe that the chief end of man is to find pleasure in this world, and kind of a eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow will die sort of mentality. And they saw the end as uh, extinction, that we're just headed for nothingness, and so we should enjoy life while we're here. They think that even if there are gods, they don't really have anything to do with us. Stoics, on the other hand, uh, think that everything is God and that everything hap happening to them is simply their destiny. That human ability to influence things is very limited and the only thing they can control is their attitude about what happens. So they strive to remain calm in all situations and kind of await their absorption into the universe to become part of everything that, that is God. And we'll see how Paul confronts these two worldviews as we continue on here in a few verses. But in these, we see that Paul is really unashamed of his faith in Christ, and he's willing to talk to anyone, anywhere about it. Normally, when Paul entered a town and went to the synagogue, he simply had to convince people that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the, the Messiah that, that the Jews were expecting to come. And they were already familiar with the biblical foundation of, of what to expect, and so they understood what Paul was saying. Uh, but the Jews didn't intend to agree with him, of course, they, they didn't believe that Jesus really was the Messiah, and, but they at least understood what he was trying to say. And when Paul went to the marketplace, it was a lot different. They didn't have that framework. They didn't understand. And they really had no way to understand Jesus as the Christ and what that meant because they were Gentiles. And so when Paul preaches the good news about Jesus and the resurrection, he uh, gets a, a strange response. We see them saying, what is this babbler trying to say? We see them saying, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. There are these things that he's saying that we, we don't understand. We have no framework to understand what he's saying. And this really brings up a good point for us. As good as our intentions may be, when sharing our faith, we, we have to know our audience. This is the next thing for your notes there if you're following along. We, we have to know our audience. We must communicate things to them in a way that they're going to understand. Truth is good, but it must be presented to people at their level. And in order to do that, we have to know what their level is. 
So we may need to uh, take some time and energy and invest some relational capital in, in people in order to figure that out, to, to know where they stand and what they believe or don't believe so that we can take them on to, to further understanding. And one of the best ways to begin is to ask good questions. In order to do evangelism well, it helps to know something about the people that we're going to speak with. And Paul has taken some time to walk around town and he's going to use that to his advantage in the upcoming verses. But asking good questions, finding things out about people is a great way to start knowing your audience so that you can communicate to them in a way that they're going to understand at their level. For example, here in Basque Country, I ran into a friend last summer on the beach who was walking up and down the shore. Uh, he didn't have his bathing suit on. He was just fully clothed and walking up and down the shore and I ran into him and I just said, hey, what are you up to? What are you doing today? And he said, oh, I'm just down here to meditate for a while. I was a little bit surprised by his answer, um, but come to find out, meditation is really popular here and a lot of people participate. Often it's a, an Eastern sort of meditation where they're just trying to either empty their mind or find inner peace or um, just escape reality for a little bit, but meditation is pretty common here. And knowing that gives us an opportunity here in Basque Country. We can ask people why they meditate. What's the purpose of your, of your meditation? How does that help you in life? And after we find out and listen to them and, and find out, we can use that knowledge to then ask further good questions, which hopefully then will lead to a conversation about how we use meditation. We have Christian meditation also, and we can talk to them about how we relate that to God's Word and to prayer. And maybe we can start a spiritual conversation that way. But asking good questions is important, and it gives us an opportunity to then move things into a spiritual realm by talking about our own experiences uh, and things that are similar to theirs. In this case, uh, the things that Paul was talking about in the marketplace piqued the interest of those who were listening, and it earned him an invitation. And so we see him continue on and, and uh, earn the right to share in verse 19. Let's read there. Says, when they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. The people in Athens were seemingly obsessed with the latest and greatest thing, which is really not unlike our current societal context. They were the smartest people around and they wanted to make sure that they didn't miss out on something new that they were supposed to know about. The Areopagus was the place in Athens where people gathered to have important forums and even sometimes court hearings or trials. And on this occasion, Paul is given an opportunity to share. And so he changes his presentation a little bit from just talking about Jesus and the resurrection like he was in the marketplace and he got those strange questions. Uh, watch how he changes his presentation here in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I am going to proclaim to you. One of the best things we can do for people is affirm their intelligence. In our attempts to explain our faith, it's important that we acknowledge what people do know in the midst of introducing new ideas to them. And we see Paul do this with the Jews, too. He starts by saying, basically, here's what you know, 
and you're on the right track. But here's something else that you need to know. And so he affirms what they do know first before moving on to what they need to know. And here in his presentation, he seeks to do the same thing. No one wants to feel like an idiot. And it's important that we don't make people feel like that when we're uh, explaining our faith to them. Whether it's intentional or not, our words should be seasoned with salt, as Paul tells the Colossians. In this particular speech, Paul affirms their willingness to acknowledge the existence of spiritual things. First, he says, in every way I see you're very religious. Uh, he even affirms their desire to make sure they haven't forgotten to worship a deity by constructing an altar to a god they may not know about. And then after affirming them in that, he feeds their thirst for knowledge by using their idol to his advantage. And he says, let me tell you about this god that is unknown to you. Look at verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Understanding that these Gentiles have no framework to understand Jesus, Paul backs up to, to the beginning. Notice how he moves to confront the two worldviews that he was met with at the marketplace even. Contrary to what the Stoics believe, everything is not God. He starts by explaining that there's one creator who made everything. And contrary to the Epicureans, the God who exists does not have uh, nothing to do with, with us. He has everything to do with us. He gives us life and breath and everything else. He's very personal. He's directly involved in our lives. Not only did he make everything, but he's self-sufficient. And he's the Lord of everything in heaven and on earth. And this sets God above all the other deities that the Athenians had been worshipping. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. And this is especially significant in their context because where they're sitting at the Areopagus is directly outside of the temple of Ares, the god of war. So Paul continues and he says in verse 26, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. This is a verse that I come back to really often because it's a great reminder of the sovereignty of God. He has marked out the times of each civilization in history, even down to the boundaries of their lands. And this is an extremely relevant verse for us in light of what's transpired these last few months in the United States. Regardless of what you think about coronavirus or voter fraud or freedom of speech or whether or not the country is going to collapse, God is not surprised by that. No matter what happens, he's allowing things to happen in the world for one very important reason. And he explains that reason in the next verse. Look at verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So somehow, in God's great plan, in his great providence, the shifting of civilizations is designed to draw people to God. Now we may not understand exactly how it works, but Paul is really explicit about it here. And some of my favorite words in the Bible are the words so that. You may have heard me say that before, but every time I see so that, I circle it in my Bible because I love to see God give us a reason for what he's doing. In this instance, he gives us a glimpse and it says uh, that we are to be reminded that even if the country I live in is not headed in the direction that I wish it would be, 
Somehow it's for his glory. Everything is working toward a day in which God will be made known to everyone on the whole face of the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And church, if right now we find ourselves caring more about maintaining our current way of life than we do about making Christ known to those around us, then we need to revisit the idle discussion that we had earlier. We need to repent and get on mission. Everything is working toward a day when all will know God. And the way that he's making the world move toward that is unknown to us, but we have to trust him that that's what he's doing. People everywhere right now are looking for hope, so let's give them the real thing. Not a hope that rests on things that are going to perish and fade, but an everlasting hope that rests in Jesus Christ. Paul continues on in his attempt to provide that to the Athenians by quoting from their own literature. Look at verse 28. It says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now once again, Paul uses something that they're already familiar with. He doesn't quote from scripture because that holds no sway with them. They're unfamiliar with what scripture is and that it holds authority, that it is true, like he does with the Jews. Instead, he adapts something of their own. And these two verses, or two quotes in, in verse 28, are actually about Zeus. They're from past poets and they're describing the god Zeus. But again, Paul tries to say, you know these general things are true, and they are. You've just attributed them to the wrong god. So he affirms something that they know, but then he tries to reintroduce it to them in a new way in relation to the one true god. He says, you're on the right track. Just stick with me. And Paul's about to move into the next phase of his presentation where he talks about our position as humans in light of the God that he has just described. And there's a, a common evangelism strategy that uses the same sequence of ideas that Paul's using here, and it can be described in these simple terms. God, man, Christ, response. That is, we start by sharing with people and describing who God is. We talk about God himself as the creator. We talk about God himself as the authority over our lives. And Paul has just finished doing this step. He's finished describing who God is. And then, after that, we move on to man or mankind. We talk about how mankind has not obeyed God's authority over us, and as a result, that puts us in a position of deserving punishment. After identifying that problem, we identify the solution for them. That is Christ, and this is where we share the gospel. Finally, after that, we move to response, which, once we've heard the truth, we have to respond to it either by rejecting it or accepting it, but there has to be some sort of response. So God, man, Christ, response. And we'll see Paul try and work through those here as well. As you run through that sequence with other people in your lives, uh, that sequence may not be completed in one conversation. That may take several conversations or several years of conversations even, but I've found it to be a helpful tool when I'm trying to figure out where to start or where to go next. God, man, Christ, response. Watch how Paul moves from God to man in the sequence next. Verse 29. He says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, 
an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You can see here how Paul moved from God to man in the sequence, and even how he's just about to move into Christ. In this case, he does it rather quickly because he has just a short time on the platform and he's trying to present everything he can as quickly as he can. But look how he describes their problem. He makes no reference to sin, but he uses their idolatry to point it out. He basically says, if we were created by God, then why are we wasting all of our time worshiping these things that we've made? Thankfully, God has overlooked this foolishness for a while, but now he's calling everyone everywhere to repent of it. Why? Well, because he's set a day when he will judge the world with justice. There's the problem. Judgment is coming. And contrary to what the Epicureans believe, we're not simply headed for extinction. And contrary to what the Stoics believe, we're not headed for absorption into the universe. We're headed for judgment. And that's our problem as mankind. Yikes. Things just got real for the Athenians as Paul is presenting things. Paul's moved from kind of a theoretical, hypothetical conversation about a God that exists into a very personal conversation about people and our problem and our responsibility in that problem. And watch how people respond when Paul does that. Verse 32 says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Isn't that a typical response? When things move from being purely intellectual to deeply personal, people tend to sneer. I'm not even sure the others really wanted to hear him again on the subject. We have no record of him ever being invited back, so it seems more like that was a deflection, more of a, okay, we've heard enough, thanks for coming, maybe we'll have you back sometime. He never even gets to mention Jesus, and they essentially kick him out. As close as he gets to mentioning Jesus is to mention the resurrected one who will judge the world, and that was the final straw for them. They had had it kind of begs the question about why Paul asks, or why Paul talks, rather, about the resurrection before he even talks about Jesus himself, because that's what drew the questions in the marketplace, you'll remember. But I think the reason is because the resurrection is absolutely essential to the truth of the gospel. Without it, who Jesus is doesn't really matter. He's just another dead man in history. Without the resurrection, everything Jesus said is meaningless. Without the resurrection, Jesus has no authority to judge the world. Paul spills a lot of ink writing about the resurrection to the Corinthian church, which is where he ends up going after he leaves Athens. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It may sound familiar. He basically says, if there is no resurrection, we might as well be Epicureans. We might as well just enjoy life, because nothing else matters if there's no resurrection. 
We serve a risen Lord, and that's important. And in the end, Paul never makes it through his presentation to the Athenians. But we should take this as an encouragement, because even the brilliant evangelist, Paul, sometimes gets rejected by people. And sometimes we will as well. The reality is that no matter how good we are with words or persuasion, no one is going to accept the truth about Christ until the Holy Spirit prompts them to do so. So we shouldn't measure our success in evangelism by the response of those listening. Rather, in our, uh, in our presentations, our success should be me measured by our faithfulness. Instead of looking at our lives and asking, how many disciples have I made? We should ask the question, am I making attempts to share the good news of Jesus with those around me? A simple yes or no question. Not a question of numbers, but a question of faithfulness. Yes or no, am I making attempts to share the good news of Jesus with those around me? Because even if we don't see a single person come to Christ after we've started to share with them, as long as we're being faithful to share, we've been successful in the eyes of God. We're doing what God wants us to do, regardless of the response. Even if we get interrupted and kicked out like Paul did, we don't count that as failure. And that's an important truth for us to remember, especially us here in Basque Country. Evangelism here in Basque Country is a frustrating prospect sometimes. But don't be discouraged if you don't see results right away. Stay the course and be faithful. Because God has a plan and his timing is better than ours. We don't know what our sharing does in the lives of people. We don't know how the Holy Spirit is working. But what we do know is that we're called to be faithful. Look at the last verse. Verse 34. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Though there doesn't appear to have been a church planted in Athens as a result of Paul's uh, presentation, his faithfulness did end up re revealing some people that the Holy Spirit was working in. There was at least one man and one woman that followed up with Paul afterwards, and it says they believed, which suggests that Paul was able to finish his presentation to talk about Christ and the response that they need to have for salvation. And this just proves again that sometimes evangelism is more of a process than a single presentation. We don't have to have some sort of memorized speech prepared in order to talk to people about Christ, to evangelize. We don't have to understand everything there is to know about the Bible before we begin sharing. Just get the ball rolling and, and use what you do know. Just see where it goes from there. And remember that you're part of a family. If you get to a point in sharing your faith where you're not sure how to express yourself or you don't have an answer for a question, invite another brother or sister along to help you. Or to start a discovery Bible study to find the answer together with the person that's, that's asking the question you don't have an answer to. All you have to do is get started and see what the Holy Spirit does from there. And there may just be a Dionysius or a Damaris in your life that's really glad that you did. That you took that first step and introduced them to the idea of there being a God before even getting to Christ. So there may be people in your lives that really need you to, to, to get that ball rolling, and I encourage you to do that. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you're not smart enough or not outgoing enough or in any other way not good enough in order to start sharing the good news of Jesus with people. You don't need a ministry degree to talk about how great God is and what he's done in your life. 
And that's good because I don't have one of those either. It's not a pastor's job to do the ministry. It's the work of the pastor to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And the saints are you and me. Our ministry that we're being equipped for is to make God known in the world. And that could be as complex as planting a new church or as simple as sharing the good news of Jesus with your neighbor or talking to someone about who God is at work. Someone in your sphere of influence. Here in Basque Country, we may not end up planting a church ourselves, but we do believe that God is calling us to facilitate a church being planted. And that starts by making God known. He's calling us to share the truth here, just like he's calling you to share the truth there in Fulton County, wherever you may be listening from this morning. Whether you end up planting a church or simply sharing about Jesus with a friend or neighbor, be faithful. That's what we see here. Be faithful. And though we may not find ourselves exactly where we expected to be right now at this point in our lives, God desires to use us where we are. Be faithful. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us the direction we need to find those that the Holy Spirit is working in, that you would give us the wisdom to ask good questions, and that you would give us the boldness and the courage to share the good news, the glorious news of Jesus Christ with them. Amen.